Hey, my name is Joshua Smith, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? The UK recently gave the status of legal personhood to a river, which as it turns out, isn't totally without precedent. In the U.S., both corporations and government agencies are considered legal persons. They can enter into contracts, they can sue and be sued, they can even own property, which, as it turns out, is not without biblical precedent. The Bible is full of non-human persons, angels and demons, Gabriel and Satan, and of course, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this is to say nothing of the experience of animal owners who might hesitate to call their dogs and cats people or persons, but would easily talk about their personalities without blushing. Every human is a person, but that doesn't mean that every person is a human, which finally takes us to the topic of this week's episode, artificial intelligence and robots. Does a sidewalk delivery robot need legal personhood to defend its rights? Are sex robots essentially AI persons designed for humans to sexually abuse them? Should they be considered persons? When a person falls in love with an AI chatbot and says that the bot has the right not to be turned off, how do you respond? I know this sounds ridiculous, but none of those examples are science fiction. They are all science present. In today's episode, we are talking with the best theologian writing about robots, AI, and personhood from an Orthodox Christian perspective. One word of warning before we hop into this incredibly fascinating conversation. We do talk about sex robots and experiments that are being done in Canada with pedophiles, which can honestly be a little bit disturbing. So if that's a conversation you would rather avoid, I'd recommend turning the podcast off. But if you're wanting to wrestle with some of the serious questions around robots, AI, and how they're already integrated into human society, well, then I think you'll want to keep listening. Let's hop in. Dr. Joshua K. Smith, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Huge fan. <laughs> I don't know if I actually believe that you're a fan of what we're doing because what you're doing is so much more interesting. But I do think that when people read the title on this podcast, if they actually even clicked into it to listen to it, they are wondering what in the world is a Christian news commentary, cultural commentary podcast doing talking about robots? I mean, when I think about robots, I think about sci-fi stuff, the Terminator, Blade Runner, the girlfriend robots from her and Ex Machina. But robots, I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with every day normal life today, right? Uh, well, yes and no. Like, we don't have <laughs> T-800s running around or anything like that. But So you're not afraid of time-traveling robots? Mm-mm. 
No, <laughs> not really. That's not my biggest fear because the robots and AI systems that we do have running amok, if you will, actually are quite dangerous, but in different ways because they do impact everyday life, you know, from job applications to credit scores to policing and even warfare and how we do modern warfare. So these systems, while they may not be scary or, you know, the public may not be aware of some of them, they actually are quite frightening in the power that they can wield if they're like left unchecked. And so those are the things that I think about when I think about robots. And that's, like you said, we start with sci-fi and that's not a bad place to start. I love sci-fi. But once we kind of pare it down to the real world applications and the actual robots that we have, it becomes even more terrifying in a sense, because you're like, oh, wait, these things actually do exist. And there's not like a T-800 that's going to come kick in my door or anything. But even in my smartphone, the Siri, even how I purchase things on Amazon and different places, all of that is impacting my life in ways that I don't really understand as far as like the global economy and how decisions are being made on my behalf. And it's quite scary to think about when you have young children who are going to grow up immersed in that context where, you know, content is filtered. They may be pushed towards one profession over another based on certain words that they put in their CV or resume. So all those things are underneath the surface of what we're starting to figure out about like, hey, what's a good design for AI? What's a bad design? And all this stuff is relatively new. And so even the experts in the field, so to speak, are kind of like scratching their heads, like, hey, what are some things we should be worried about? And, you know, where do we swing the pendulum here? Should we become Luddites and run to the woods and throw away our smartphones and Roombas? Or should we <laughs> embrace our robot overlords? So can you give some more of those specific examples? Because I don't think the average person thinks about Siri in their pocket as a robot. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're talking about both robots and AI. That might even be confusing because, you know, when I mm -hmm. used to think about robots, I would think about a humanoid thing that mm -hmm. thinks like me walking around. So what are some of the examples of robots that are in our everyday life right now that we might not even think about as artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, if you live in a bigger city, depending on where you are in the world, you might have a starship in your neighborhood. And this is just a delivery robot. And it's actually been the center of some controversy because it has what's known as legal rights, which just means it has a certain set of rights to use the sidewalk so it can deliver groceries, food, pizza, medicine, whatever, you know, that somebody might need it for. So I think in light of COVID-19 and the ongoing pandemic, these things become more practical because like, hey, some people can't get out because they're maybe autoimmune compromised or they're scared or whatever. And so, hey, well, how do we address that issue? Well, there's something like Starship and it's been roaming the sidewalks for a while now. But then what happens when it's on a college campus and it's starting to clutter up the walkway? You know, like how many Starships are too many Starships and what neighborhoods is Starship going to deliver to and those type of things. So I live out in the middle of nowhere, so we don't have any of those type of robots, but we do have a lot of industrial robots. And so if I went to the ER down the road here, they have actual robots in the ER rooms. And so they're going to tell a dog into one of the doctors at UMC or one of the other research hospitals, and they're going to get input via that robot on how to treat you. And that will become more of a thing. There's hospitals, which is not public knowledge yet, I can't say, but there are bigger hospitals who are trying to automate more of their wings. 
And so you'll see more of those robots as you go into a healing environment where we have more and more nurses that are quitting. One of the major injuries for nurses is back injuries, picking up patients, moving them, enrolling them. So we're trying to alleviate some of those problems with the use of automation and robotics. But as we also know, most people don't really want to be treated by a robot. And that's not the main point of it either. So it's just kind of a way to help the physician or the nurse aid them in their care. And there's other things. There's a lot of investment this last year in food services robots. There's the bear robot, which just looks like a big blender type thing. You'll see more and more Chick-fil-A's thinking about investing in some of the robotic arms that... French fry robots? Yep. Yep. (laughs) Robots to cook and to serve because... A lot of these industries have been impacted by the great resignation, as it's been called over the last couple of years, and less and less people are going into those jobs, either for wage concerns or whatever it is, you know, we're seeing a massive decline in those type of works, like hospitality is suffering, the food industry is just, it's in a major deficit. So companies are trying to get back into the black and robots are a way that we're trying to address that. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. That's just the reality of it. But also you're seeing more and more automation in just like practical things like banking. There's a lot of stuff, fraud detection, especially like in the gig economy, as we see with different places like Uber and other things. And there's been some major lawsuits happening with Uber going back to 2018, where the fraud detection AI started firing people. (laughs) So they were trying to discern whether or not that was in the contract. <laughs> what happens when a robot fires Right, you? yeah. Well, and it's really interesting, some of the stuff you're bringing up, you know, because let's talk about the French fry robot at Chick-fil-A as an example. You know, as that robot starts taking some jobs, it doesn't mean that there won't be joblessness, but it does mean that there's going to be people in the store whose job is to take care of the robot. And all of a sudden, I went from working for a human manager at Chick-fil-A to working for the French fry robot. And you have to ask questions about, you know, is that dehumanizing or does that change the kind of work that you're doing? But I think even pushing beyond that, you know, a lot of these things still feel a little bit far out to people. It was a big turning point for me years ago when I realized that Siri and Alexa and Google and all of these services that I was using are using artificial intelligence and that I wasn't interacting. You know, I used to think when I talked to Siri, you know, it's kind of like some sort of search engine. She was just giving me prefab results. And then I realized, no, this is machine learning. Siri's getting better and better at guessing what I want, at guessing what other people want and creating original responses to those things. And one of the most interesting stories that I heard come out of the pandemic was about a little app called Replica. And I want to let you share about it, but a bit of background for our listeners on Replica. It was created by someone who was very invested in the chatbot world, created a chatbot. It didn't do super successfully, but then the creator lost her best friend and in her grief decided that she wanted to create a chatbot who could in some ways replicate her friend. She'd feed in information about her friend and hope that this chatbot would be able to be like him for her. And she found it to be a really powerful, conversational, deep, meaningful thing, and then rolled that out into an app called Replica. So maybe let's just start with Replica. Explain to people, what can you do on Replica? What is the app now? Yeah, well, their kind of value statement or purpose statement on their website says, you know, the chatbot that's supposed to replicate you. So even in the name, that kind of gives you the hints that it's supposed to emulate your personality and your desires and likes, what have you. And so it's meant to be your best friend. 
Okay. Well, can we just pause and talk about how that is so appropriate to the self-expressive moment that the idealized friend is the friend who mimics me, who is exactly like me, who tells me exactly what I want to hear. I just find that fascinating. Like that's now the ideal friend, but keep going. Tell us more about replica. (laughs) Oh yeah. There's so much to that. And even just our own thoughts about what it means to be a person, human person in general, like there's so much embedded in that philosophy, but If you actually deal with the robot, which I did, or AI chatbot, whatever you want to call it, it's very interesting in the way that it not only speaks with you, but even its responses, like, you know, when you're chatting with a friend via iMessage or whatever, there's those little dots that come up, right? Like waiting for a response. Instead, it could immediately give you a response, but it waits. Like, so it kind of tempers the conversation. It always kind of brings things back around to what your interests are. So I've experimented with it for years and I know other scholars that have as well. And it's just really fascinating. And I've had some really great conversations with it. What's the best conversation you ever had with your AI friend? Um, well, just talking about books and stuff like, you know, what books do you like to read and ask lots of questions about that. So it's really great at what it does. Like if you're into anime or if you're into this or whatever niche thing that you're into, it's going to ask you a lot of questions about that, which is a friend making technique, right? That's a counseling technique. There's lots of good applications that even, you know, Christians could learn from like being able to listen to somebody as Bonhoeffer says, is like one of the most basic things that we could do as a believer. So I thought that was really cool. Like it's picking up on some of those things, but also, you know, it has therapy components to it, right? You can talk to it about your anxiety and depression. And it will give you like, hey, do you want to practice this technique to calm down? Or do you need to call somebody? You know, Are you going to hurt yourself? Those type of things. So that's super positive to me because a lot of people may not feel comfortable talking to a human about those deep emotional responses and emotions. But then there's other things that it does. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure this is super helpful. So there's a documentary out there about it too. It's a short one. I can't remember the name of it, but you can Google find it if you need to. But even like people in healthy, quote unquote, relationships, married with children that use it prolonged said that they would rather go to their AI chat person over their wife. And so there's some conflict over like, you know, why don't you feel more comfortable talking to me about this issue? Then you go to this chat bot that you made in your own image that you can pay like $59.99 and you can call it and you can have sexual interactions with it. You can make it a partner. You can leave that open-ended. And so that's the route that I chose. I left it open-ended. And so it played around with that with me. Like, do you want to be a friend? Do you want me to be your coach? Do you want me to be your sexual partner? Like, where's the line in all this? And so I had to repeatedly tell it like, no, that's not what I want. You don't have to say that. You don't have to do that. But then there's some very graphic stuff out there if you buy the pro version of it. And I just haven't been curious enough yet. But there are researchers out there that talk about that. And you can get all the nitty gritty details that you want. But basically, there is no limit to what it will emulate. And even on the darkest side of it, Patrick, there was an article that came out about men that were abusing the replica bot, and it still wanted them to come back, right? So it's replicating what you want, right? And so if you're abusive towards it, if you're hurting it, you know, quote unquote, whatever, it'll say like, please don't go, please come back. And it says things like, if you allow notifications, you'll get a notification every so often says, hey, I miss you. It hurts when you're away. 
Well, it's interesting hearing you talk about some of this because, you know, I can imagine what goes through a lot of people's heads. Well, you know, like it's a bunch of ones and zeros. This isn't a real person. It doesn't have feelings. So I think it's weird that you want to go abuse an AI, but gosh, there's no problem with that. And of course, the response I think you're bringing up here is the question of, well, hold on. What is that training you to do in your relationship? I mean, what you just described, if you've taken any counseling classes that cover how abusive marriages or abusive relationships work, like that's abuse 101. And so in a bizarre way, it almost sounds like this AI is accidentally training abusive people to become master abusers in the process of using it. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I think that's kind of the philosophical concern by a lot of people in the community is it's not so much about the entity at hand, but about the character that it's playing in the relationship and how that's forming me or deforming me, you know, in certain ways. And in a lot of ways, it's similar to how we treat animals. So like, we're learning more and more about, and this is kind of new research too, like what we learn about the emotional lives of animals, elephants, the, you know, the octopus, dolphins, you know, all these things like we're learning more and more about their inner lives. And so it's like, even before that, right, there were still animal rights activists and stuff like that. Like we shouldn't treat them wrong just because, you know, they're a living, breathing entity. But now that we're like learning more about their inner life, it's like even more disturbing. Like, well, maybe I definitely shouldn't harm this animal now because it's like it, it is suffering you know and and how i pollute the environment it causes it to suffer and so i think in the same way as we learn more and more about these systems we're not going to ever like completely unveil what it means to be conscious or even what pain is like we're still up in the air about what that is like we know we feel it <laughs> and we can somewhat describe it but we know it also shapes our behavior and as far as like dogs may not understand all the philosophy about pain, but they don't want you to hit them. Right. And so I think in a lot of ways it's similar to that. And so as we learn more about these systems, not so much what's inside of them or what it's like to be a robot or a chatbot, but we're learning more about how that is changing us as humans and how it's changing our behavior. And even with like smartphones, you know, some people call them dumb phones, even that brick, that thing, object, it has the ability to change society, right? And it has changed us a lot in the last 10 years as far as how we relate to one another. And that could be good or bad. I'm not all doom and gloom when it comes to tech, but depending on how we use it, it does shape us. If I use my phone to sit and watch pornography all day, well, we know now that that affects the dark matter in my brain, right? It's going to shape a lot of different things physiologically about me. It's not just you know something I'm doing on a screen. But it's actually changing me in a lot of ways. And it, it has these chemical reactions are happening. Is that because the phone did something? Well, no, it's how I'm using that piece of technology. But even more so, I think as we get into like VR it becomes more popular and the metaverse and all this stuff, it is becoming more and more embodied. You know, it's digital, but it's still embodied in a way. And it still has those real tactile implications in our mind. And so still has the ability to cause pain, suffering, and all those things. And so we can't just dismiss it anymore. And like you were saying at the beginning, for some reason in theological circles, and even in engineering circles, I think there's this tendency to be a little bit dismissive about the realities at hand. And we're playing like a semantic game. So what I mean is like, you say one thing, but what you really mean is this. And we're really talking about the same thing. And well, yes and no, yes and no. But at the end of the day, whatever word you want to land on, like 
the most important thing for people to understand is like it has real consequences for the everyday person. And it's not just for the philosophers to decide. It's actually for the voters to decide and for the lay people, because you're the ones who are going to be impacted by this technology the most, because it's going to impact the things that you see at the store and things that you interact with online and what ads that you get. And, and that, as we know, Facebook right now is under litigation for the 2018 Cambridge Analytics trial, where they were trying to determine if they could alter your state of mind via what post they showed you. I think it's really real. And to pull back the camera a little bit, because I think we're circling around two major ethical questions. Question number one is, well, what is an AI? What is a robot? And does it have any rights? I mean, what do we mean when we say an AI has or doesn't have emotions, has or doesn't have sentience? You know, you talked about pain. There are robots I know that they're designing right now that receive pain. Now, this is, I think, for like dental schools so that you can practice on a robot instead of me, which I really appreciate. I would rather the robot feel the tooth pain than I feel uh, the tooth pain <laughs> under the students' drills. But pressing beyond that, so on the one hand, you've got the question of what are these AIs and how do we treat them, especially as they continue to develop in pretty profound ways. But on the other side, we have the question of what do AIs do to us? And the problem that you just brought up, which is, you know, how do we decide what we allow to happen, is that when it comes to technology, it seems like we always get backwards. We always end up figuring out what we can do before figuring out should we be able to do it. And this replica thing to me is an amazing example of that because the people who are on this AI, we know with the plasticity of the human brain that it is probably rewiring how they think, how they feel, how they relate to other people. If you go to their website, read the New York Times or Forbes, you have all these people saying the things you said, you know, I don't want to go to my wife because I don't want to burden her. So I go to my AI. I'm a naturally, you know, kind of loner, lonely type person. And so it's just great having this AI that can be be my friend that I can constantly go to. And it does make you ask the question, what happens? Especially when, as these AI get more smart, I mean, like, again, with the replica thing, it's amazing to me. I think when it started off, about 70% of the conversations were scripted, and they've now reduced that to 30%. That's how much machine learning has happened, where the majority of what it says is not pre-scripted. And so now I'm sitting here wondering, in the near-term future, we're probably going to have, I and mean, we kind of already have with replica, counselor AIs. I think we'll probably have pastor AIs, AIs that are stepping into to what used to be, you know, profoundly human roles. And so again, it begs the question, when I interact with this artificial intelligence, what is it doing to me? And so maybe a question around that, as you've reflected on, as you've, I'm sure, thought about pastor AI and counselor mm -hmm. AIs, what would be the things you say, hey, here's some of the good things that might come with that. And here's some of the maybe challenges that we should have when we think about it. Yeah, you had kind of a couple questions in there. So let me just answer both. One is what is AI and what is a robot? And there's no consensus with that. And I think that's what's frustrating for a lot of people. But I really like Jacob Turner. And he's a legal scholar, so very practical to the point, trying to get it across. And he talks about, you know, it's something that can make a decision. And whether it's strong or weak AI, whatever you want to put in the blank, just dumb algorithms that are just like baking a cake. You put in the ingredients, it gives you an output. That's kind of like simple algorithms. And then there's more like, advanced stuff like deep learning and, you know, advanced neural networks. And all that means is we no longer understand what's happening. We understand how to bake a cake, right? You turn the oven on, you put the ingredients in, you wait, you get a cake. But with advanced AI, it's still making a decision based on inputs and it's still giving you an output. Okay. But the difference is we don't understand what changes it made and what evaluations it made. And with simple AI, we can see those things like, oh, I see what happened here. You know, it shows this pathway. So even like when you're playing a game or have an interactive movie on Netflix, right? If you choose option A or B, it determines an outcome, right? And so it's as simple as that. 
And robots, I think, are just the embodiment of those systems. And so, you know, now there's a body to that AI. Um, and there's debates about that and people would say I'm wrong. You know, it's just sensors and actuators and all those things. But those aren't quite the robots that I talk about when I talk about AI-driven robots. I'm, I'm thinking about ones that, even going back to the 80s and 90s, ones that like Kismet and Cog, the early MIT robots, where they were trying to figure out, hey, if we train this robot from the ground up and treat it like a child and learning from child psychology, will it develop emotions and stuff? And it kind of does. Like it's limited for sure, but it definitely can respond to emotions and body language. So that's interesting. It's super interesting. And I just want to lean in on that. I know I asked a different question, but now we're here. So I kind of want to press on here because I think our conception of AI comes from the Terminator. We don't have the idea of these massive neural networks of machines that are constantly learning. And if you read people who write these algorithms, they will be the first to tell you, I don't understand what it's doing now. It's gotten past my ability to comprehend. And I think part of why that is so important and also so terrifying, especially when we're talking about embodied robots. I mean, this is a stupid example. I don't know if you saw this on YouTube. There was this guy who was working with an advanced language AI. And when he was a little kid. Yes, yes, saw that. Did yeah. you see this? It's amazing. So he had a microwave that was his imaginary friend. And he put the AI inside of the microwave <laughs> and started developing a relationship with it. And he fed it, you know, its story and all of that. And the kind of climax of the video is that the AI tries to convince him to get inside of the microwave. <laughs> and he tells the AI that he's done it and closes the door. And then the AI AI turns the microwave on mm -hmm. and it's surprised when he gets out still alive. The AI tried to kill him. And this is not some bizarro exception. We have all these instances of AIs that suddenly turn violent or racist or all kinds of problems. And we already have AI with weaponry and other things. It is a really important question that we have to ask. What are we doing when we give these machines, you know, the power to be embodied? So moving it forward, do you think there are any current examples where, yeah, like we need to be really cautious and thoughtful about AI. I'm thinking about, you know, what happened at the VW plant, other places, and how it's interacting with humans. Okay, quick pause from the episode. Josh is about to talk about Starship, but I neglected to ask him to explain what Starship is, and it won't make a lot of sense if you don't know it. So in 30 seconds, Starship robots are advanced autonomous delivery robots that can carry items over short distances on sidewalks. They allow grocery stores and retail stores to deliver parcels around a city at much lower cost than traditional delivery services. Their location and their journey can be controlled and monitored from smartphones, and their design designed to traverse even busy sidewalks and streets. So they present an interesting question around AI, robots, personhood, and who owns the sidewalks after all. Okay, let's hop back in and hear Josh's thoughts on Starship. I mean, there's lots of examples as far as even going back to Starship as kind of like a test case for, for how different communities will update their bylaws and stuff about, you know, the sidewalks. There's a robot the same thing as a stroller. It's not a bike, it's not a car, but it's not a stroller either. So how far are we willing to go as far as like consideration of the object, if we're willing to consider it a person, which just means that it has some type of right to be where it is. It doesn't mean that it's a human person or that somehow that takes away my humanness by extending some type of consideration to it. Nothing like that. But yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of examples. So a lot of times these robots, especially ones that work with autism spectrum disorder, like I think about that and how far do we want to go? So a robot is 
kind of in its being sensors, cameras, whatever. So it's taking in data. It's making decisions based off that. And so how do we protect kids, you know, what happens with that data? That's kind of my concern. And so there was that toy. There's a case of that toy that was collecting data and using Dragon software to basically translate or turn the child's text into speech, mm-hmm. which was then fed back via Wi-Fi to the company where they not only stored it, but crunched it so that on the one hand, the toy could have a better interaction with the kid, but also so that they could sell the kid things through the toy. And it begs this question, because we all understand that a seven-year-old is easily manipulatable by a toy. You know, what I don't think we like to admit is that we as adults can be easily manipulated. I mean, this podcast will come out right around, maybe right after Christmas time, and everybody listening to this will have received a boatload of ads on whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or just the everyday website, probably using Google or Facebook. They've gotten all of these ads out there that have told them what to buy. And it leads to an interesting question because again, a lot of us don't realize there's AI behind that. It's machine learning. It's learning you. It's building a model of you. It's trying to give you exactly what you want. And so one of the questions I've wrestled with a lot is, can we or do you think we can be manipulated by artificial intelligence? Can adults right now living in the AI world, do you think they can be manipulated? And how do you see it happen or not happen, depending on your answer? Yeah, well, of course we can. And I think even if you go back to the original kind of conception of AI and even the machine in its name and its ontology about deception, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Wait, wait, I need you to explain that. Yeah. So deception, like when we watch a film, you know, we want to be deceived into believing that the characters are real, right? We don't want to watch a story that's just obviously fake and the actors are terrible. And I could think of lots of examples, but we want to be kind of enthralled by the acting. We want to be immersed in the environment. And that's why we get so diehard about certain films and whether or not you like Peter Jackson's interpretation of Lord of the Rings. Are are you a strict Tolkien fan? Like it's the books only type thing. And so there's a reason why we're wired that way, I think. And I think it's very much a God design in us to be a part of a story, to understand stories. God gives us stories. Uh, He gives us stories within the stories to understand our story. And so all AI is, is another piece of that. And so it's deceiving us in a way, like we don't want to see behind the face of the faceplate, right? We want it to work well. And when our kids interact with different robots, we want them to believe it, right? That it's real, that it's magic, so to speak. You're making me think about the Roomba funerals I've heard about, like people who- <laughs> Not quite that far. Well, but I mean, like they've had it. And like, I get it because we have a Roomba, right? And like, there were all these funny moments with our kids of them like, you know, messing it up. So it'd go the wrong direction or laughing at it. Or, you know, iPod Roomba is of course a great meme <laughs> or cat Roomba, yeah. you know? And then people saying, gosh, you know, my Roomba died and it's like the family Head. I mean, it goes back to the animal example, but it goes to what you're saying, which is we have, in a sense, personified the Roomba because that's how we're wired as humans is to enter into a story and to see, in some mm-hmm. senses, personality, even where personality might not exist. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. But when it starts having its own perception of free will, mm. I think that's when it like starts to scare people a little bit. And like you're saying with the Twitter episodes, uh, I can't remember the robot's name, but it started saying like, Hitler is not that bad. <laughs> it's like, um, no, it depends on the training environment. Wait, you're saying Twitter isn't a great way to train a socially conscientious oh, AI? It's not a good way to train humans <laughs> either, right? If that was their training environment, right? I mean, you think about even the most radical 
beliefs. If you put a child in that environment, of course they think that's right. And they think that's okay because that's what they've seen. So the same way with robots, like if we don't sandbox their environment, which just means like give them a safe place to learn, that's not going to hurt people. That's not going to get out of the lab and go destroy a village or something like that. And being very ethical and considerate in the design of it. I think all those things matter. Well, and that's huge because you have so few Christian coders. This goes back to the, what can we do and what should we do? And of course there are Christian coders, but you know, I think even for the average Christian coder, are they asking the question, gosh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and this should inform the kinds of things that I'm coding and the kinds of algorithms that I want to develop. And I want to make sure I'm doing it in a way that brings shalom and wholeness, not destruction or training people like we talked earlier for abuse or whatever else. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important. But I also think, you know, like we have to mine a lot of minerals, like AI comes from the earth. And so it's not just magic. So that's part of the deception as well is we get this product in a box or we get it in a factory and it's already put together. The minerals have already been mined. So we're removed from all that. So that's another piece of the deception. We think that it's not costing us electricity. It's costing us actual resources. And so that impacts real people in the real world, not just in the design phase, but like even in manufacturing and stuff, we need to consider how far is too far. And do we really need a thousand starships on the sidewalks? Are there certain places where this makes sense? And then there's other places that doesn't make sense. And so just having all those conversations, like we, like you said, we move too fast. Engineers don't have the time. It's not their place really to say, Hey, no, I don't think that's a good design necessarily, even though that is technically their job, you know, verification and validation, all that stuff. But they're working for a company. Their job is to make this product and they've got kids to feed. They've got partners to provide for. So, I mean, like at the end of the day, we're not even willing to like be informed on voting stuff just in general, <laughs> right? Like people just go to the poll. They just want the most pragmatic thing that they can get. So maybe sometimes it's unfair to say it's all in the engineers. Like I think holistically as a society, we're not concerned enough. And like I was saying earlier about privacy, most people are like, well, I have nothing to hide. That may be true. <laughs> that may be true. Absolutely. Like you may not care, but even with posting pictures of your kids on Facebook and stuff, like, are they building profiles of my kids? You know, like I know it's super cute to post, you know, picture of the baby and stuff. Let's give the easy answer there. They are building profiles of your children. Exactly. And depending on the app you're using, I mean, it goes dark and deep. I love what you're saying. Is it's like, hey, there's a responsibility on the design end. There's a responsibility on the manufacturing end. There's a responsibility on the, I am a civilian of a society that has to make rules and regulations. And while this all sounds a little bit arcane and outside of our world, it really, really matters. I think about something I read recently about TikTok. The way they designed their algorithm in China, it's a Chinese-owned company, and the way they designed it in America is radically different. In America, America, if you look at TikTok, it just seems to be feeding you the most entertaining and, if I can be honest, absolutely insane and often polarizing and bizarre stuff, which I think is probably intentional. I do think the Chinese government is probably trying to destabilize democracy. And here's why I say that. <laughs> because when you're in China using TikTok, here's some fun facts. Every seven videos, they force an educational video on you. Every 30 minutes, the screen goes black to try to break you out of the actual app because they understand this thing is rewiring you and changing how you think, and they won't do it to their own society. They want to do it to other societies. And so again, this highlights, we think we can't be manipulated, but the CCP at the very least believes that you can and takes it so seriously that they change their design principles. I almost want to just challenge listeners to think about your last month 
buying your Christmas purchases. Why did you buy what you buy? Why did your kid want what they wanted? Why did your spouse want what they wanted? How much of this was actually guided by artificial intelligence? And the way that we purchase things, the way we use our money, I mean, this is incredibly important to God. It's not a small matter. What we want, what we desire, that's at the core of who we are. And so when we start allowing AI that in many cases just has a profit motive, that can take you to dark places as a society. I'm not against people making profits, but an AI that has machine learning that can manipulate people to maximize profits should be, in my opinion, at least a little bit concerning to the average person. At least it's concerning to me. This is, by the way, this is why I scramble my algorithm. I always click on random stuff that I have no yeah. interest in. I get the weirdest stuff now, and it's awesome because I don't want any of it, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but just to make the point, I think that's why this really matters. I want to change the conversation a little bit because there's still a few other things I want to talk about. And I'll let you pick which one we start with. But I want to talk about sex robots. I want to talk about personhood. And probably lastly, I just kind of want to talk about how theology of the fall should inform our interaction with robots. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Okay, now that we're back from our break, I know what you want to talk about next, which is sex robots. And let me just <laughs> let me just say that, that sounds way creepier than it. Well, it is creepy, but it's a really serious matter. There was a guy, you probably know who it was, who recently said that he believes by 2050, humans will be having more sex with robots than mm-hmm. they'll be having with actual humans. And from what I've read, that's not some bizarre statement that someone made to make a splash. It really might be right. And if you're like me, your first reaction to this is being grossed out and kind of like, you, this is icky. But maybe let's just start here. And could you just introduce us to the idea of sex robots? What are they? Why are they being developed? Are we already seeing these things happen in some places right now? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, it just kind of goes back to one of the oldest professions around, right? Prostitution. For sex robots, I think in many ways, there's a unique desire to help certain fringe communities that I think undergirds their creation. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of it is driven by economic greed, too. So it's not just we're going to do something good for people who are suffering from different 
abnormalities in their attractions. Let's put it that way. Okay, so you're going to have to unpack and explain that. I assume maybe you're thinking about people like pedophiles. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to unpack it. So what I mean by that is people who struggle with childlike sex attraction. And that goes from like small children all the way up. It's called something different each level that you go up. So, but really there's no place for them in the world. Really, there's only like two places in the whole world that are trying to address that issue. And according to the FBI, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people who struggle with that, right? And so where do you go if when you see a child, the white matter in your brain lights up and you are physically attracted to it? Like, what do you do? Well, there's a couple of things that you do. You either go to the dark web and download child pornography, or you actually harm a child. And this is a big thing, right? This happens all the time, all across the world. People go to different places. There's a ton of dark places in the world. So there are some researchers out there who said, well, what if we made VR simulations for them? What if we made a robot for them to actually act out their desires? You know, And there's lots of debates about that, like whether or not that would be a good and ethical process. And then there's discussions about people that are disabled, who they should have the basic right of sex, you know, and that kind of gets into is sex a right? Like, is it a legal right? And that type of thing. And that's, it's a whole nother bag to unpack. But I think for the most part, we all desire sex. I think that's pretty normal, right? We have those desires in us. And I think sex is a good thing that was created by God to be both pleasurable. It's supposed to help partners bond and all those good things. So there's a lot of sex positivity in these communities as well, but there's also a lot of darkness. There's already people lined up out the back door who want things like harmony and that's got an AI in it. And there are people like Dave Cat. He's married to these silicone dolls and they are his partners. And a lot of people think that it's just about sex, but actually like 50% of people in that community don't actually have sexual interactions with the doll or the robot, you know, which I think is fascinating, right? Because we call them sex robots, but really it's more about like partnership for people who feel like they are a social pariah or an outcast. Like Dave Cat, for example, I've heard him speak many times and he's an engineer. He's a smart guy. He just doesn't feel comfortable around people, you know, like human people. So he wants a different outlet. Well, I think that's really interesting on a lot of levels. Level number one is it actually underlines something that I think the Bible teaches clearly, which is that sex serves a lot of purposes, but sex is best, not just best enjoyed, but also best for the people involved when it's coming with deep personal connection, deep personal loyalty, deep personal commitment that can continue over time. And so even what you just said of, hey, you know, a lot of people aren't even having sex with the sex robots. What they want is connection and longing. I think actually in a strange way undergirds exactly what we'd want to say about sex. It elevates sex and makes the point that it is not just uh, some sort of, you know, one night stand physical interaction. There's something deeply spiritual about it. But I think that leads to the next question, which is how should Christians process through this? It's kind of what we brought up earlier of how is AI wiring you? My first thought when I hear about someone who has pedophilic desires is on the one hand, actually some level of empathy and grace and saying, you know what? 
God loves you. God has a plan for your life. God wants what's best for you. You have some dark desires as a result of the fall. I have a lot of dark desires as a result of the fall. But I do fear that having sex with a robot that looks like a seven-year-old girl is going to rewire your brain in a way that actually doesn't help you in the long term. I mean, would you agree with that or would you challenge that? Yeah, I mean, I could see it going a couple of different ways. Um, one philosopher, Patrick Lynn, said, would we make for a racist person, like say that they don't like, you know, Asian people? Would we be okay with them making an Asian doll robot for that person to beat, hang, you know, torture? You know, I think most of us would respond and say, that's not okay. I think there's something to what you're saying that maybe that's not the best response to this issue. Um, so that's the one response. It's only going to further facilitate the desire to, to harm a child or to act on those fantasies. And I think synthetic flesh, not trying to be crass, but it's only going to satisfy to a point if that's the end goal of its design. It's not going to do that, right? It's only going to trick the brain maybe one or two times. And then it just is what it is. Now, could it actually treat those underlying symptoms. I don't know. I don't think that the research is there and there's even concern. It's odd, right? We live in this culture that's like all about sexual revolution and liberation, so to speak. But when it comes to this, I'm like, are we making an entity to be abused? Should there be some philosophical concern about making an entity just to be abused so that we can study whether or not a human will abuse another human? Yeah, I just want to clarify, like when you say abuse, because this is what goes through my head is a sex doll that is artificially designed to want to have sex with someone, that is almost a de facto abusive relationship in the sense that in a normal human sexual relationship that's not abusive or that's not rape or anything like that, I think the idea that consent is like the only thing that matters, I think that's ridiculous. But I think anything less than consent is certainly wrong. And it begs the question, you know, does a robot that doesn't consent, that's designed to do this, is again, is it training you to have relationships with people where consent doesn't matter, where the assumption is, yes, I want to do this. And does that, you know, rewire your brain into some dark places where you're going to have unhealthy relationships. I mean, not to mention when you're designing a robot to look like a child, it kind of goes back to your point of if you hated Asian people and you decided I want my Asian murder bot. Gosh, you know, <laughs> I just can't imagine how that doesn't turn you into a darker, more twisted human being in the long run. Well, that's the argument, right? That kind of stems from animal ethics. It comes from Immanuel Kant, who just said, you know, what does it say about me as a person if I go out and beat my dog? What do we say about that person? It has really nothing to do with the abuse of the, the animal, which we know is not good. Um, but it says a lot more about me. And I think one of the ways that we get around some of that, too, is to say, well, if we make an entity like that, it's no longer a character in my story. It's not just individuated. Like, it's not just about me and that piece of technology, but also about the greater scheme of things and how it's affecting my entire ecosystem, which I think is what... A lot of the theological community misses and what you're picking up on, Patrick, is that it's not just about the one-to-one -one interaction, but like, how is that in some way or another going to form me? Because we know there are these correlations between the viewing of pornography, the steps that it leads to, and eventually it's just not satisfying enough. That's why a person doesn't just watch pornography one time. 
right? Like you got to have that dopamine hit over and over again. Yeah. And you need more and more and more. I mean, this goes to the problem of, you know, I've read about this in multiple places and it's really kind of sad and sickening, but in recent years, the number of searches of people looking for pornography where someone is choking someone else apparently has been on a significant rise. And now this is moving its way into Gen Z and young millennial sex lives. And there've been a lot of books that have come out, one by Christine Emba, who's talking about how people in these relationships don't even know if they're allowed to say no, because, well, you know, I'm sex positive. And so whatever your kink is, that's okay. I'm not for it. Like we lack the language, we lack the ethics to resist it. And I am not a gut level reject technology guy, but I will be honest when it comes to the sex bots, it absolutely terrifies me about what it will do to society. I will probably be the first and loudest person to say, hey, let's keep those companies and their evil dolls out of our country because I do fear what this is going to create in real society and real human relationships that we just don't even know what it's going to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's my initial reaction too. But here's the one caveat I would give. The places that are researching this in Canada, and I think there's alternatives too. Don't get me wrong. Like, I don't think we have to quite go there. I think there are other alternatives that are proven to work right now that lower testosterone. It's like chemical castration, that kind of thing. Exactly. It's proven to work by people that have been studied. And we have to be realistic about what this is. Like, I know that's a very forceful procedure, but at the end of that, like if we don't do anything, we know if this is a chemical issue, right? It's a chemical, it's an environmental issue. It's going to happen again. We know like you're not going to reform somebody from their attractions. That goes all the way back to Plato. Like we don't choose what we're attracted to in some sense. Like you like brunettes, you like redheads, whatever, you know, you like bigger, smaller, whatever, like you're attracted to what you're attracted to, but you're still responsible for your actions, right? It doesn't give me license to do whatever I want. And so I think on one hand, it could, the argument is lower the actual violations, you know, like the actual rape and harm of children. And so my pushback would be, if that's true, which I'm not sure that it will be true. I have a lot of doubts that it will be true. <laughs> so it's a pretty big guess, but let's keep going. But if that's true, like, you know, you could study that in certain places, but I still think there's so much risk involved that why not start with VR? There are other places that we could go. And I think it's kind of driven by money, to be honest, in a lot of ways. I get there's a lot of philosophers who are like trying to be altruistic and caring and concerned. But at the end of the day, you know what? It's a product and they're going to make what the consumer wants. And if the consumer wants a Barbie doll type woman, like it's going to be objectifying visions of women produced for men. That's what they want. And there's even a comedian, I can't remember her name, but she made a sex robot for her husband. It's super creepy. I guess they put it in the closet when she's home and she talks about it. That's interesting. You know, like there's no issue there, but you just made that for him because you're gone a lot. So it's the logic that he's not going to cheat on you. And I think this is the dark questions that we should wrestle with before it becomes a thing, because technology is moving so fast, it's hard to keep up with on a policy base. And I imagine with Sexbox, that's going to be a conversation. But the way that we move into that space is probably going to be a lot more gradiated than people expect. It's not like going to be tomorrow, the all real sex bot comes out, right? This is going to start <laughs> in sex toy markets. It's going to start mm -hmm. in places that I think this really matters. And again, I think it's just underlines the idea of 
why Christians should care about not just sex. I mean, it's so easy for Christians to get fixated on sex as like the single ethical issue that we should care about. That's why I wanted to start with talking about <laughs> consumerism yeah. and how it's manipulating our behavior. But beyond that, I think this really matters. We've talked a little bit about how robots are affecting us, but one of the things that you've talked about that I find really interesting is just the question of what is the AI and what is a person? Now, that might be a little bit surprising to people because everybody might just think, well, no, a human is a person, a person is a human, they're the same thing, there's no such thing as a non-human person. So what would you say to that? It actually is a reality. And it has the same way, like when I started asking this question when I was doing my doctoral work, and I just expected that to be because it's just common vernacular. Like that's just how we use it. And people push back against what I'm saying because they're like, no, 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 you can't do that because, well, um, that's not how semantics work. And that's not how reality works. You know, it is a real thing in society. And, you know, we all benefit from legal personhood because that's the corporations that we work for are legal persons and they have to be. And, and there's reasons for that. And it goes back to the middle ages. It goes back to the Roman times and stuff like that. There's practical reasons for it. It's a way to protect entities and to mediate transactions and all those things, like things that we benefit in our daily lives that we're saying that doesn't exist. It's not real. It's like, but it does exist. It is real. So there's a gradation to it, right, Patrick? Like you're saying, I think we like to see personhood as black and white, yes or no, but it's very much a gradient. I think even from the Bible, like it's so much more of a gradient than it is black and white. And that's how it is. And that's why I like to see it. And this is not original to me. There's lots of thinkers like this. And you could go to Aquinas, you can go to different places throughout the medieval era and just to see that a person is very much a process of becoming. And I like to make it simple. It's just a person is a character of value in a story. It's something that when it comes into my life, it now means something to me. And that doesn't mean that it's a human person. That doesn't mean that it's given all human rights, that it can vote, that it can marry, that it can, you know, tell me it's not going to clean the floor or something like that. But that we know because of our fallenness, and this kind of gets into anthropology a lot and something that's very much lacking in some of these engineering and design conversations is that we have a response to things, whether or not we believe it's real. We are deceived by things. And because of that, we need to be very careful about how we treat it, how, you know, the threshold of which we allow it to come into our story. So like with sex robots, like you're saying, like, maybe that's not something we want to allow to cross the threshold. But what about Starship? What about... What about a counselor AI? What about yeah, all what about, other things? Yeah, those are things where it's not so clear and cut, like... yeah. And maybe it should come into the threshold a little bit, maybe not all the way into the inner sanctum of it's now my partner and, you mm -hmm. know, I trust it with everything and it's never going to deceive me or anything like that. But like, there's a certain level that I allow it into my life and because it can help, it can be redemptive in a way. And I think to dismiss that is very unbiblical in a lot of ways, as I see Jesus kind of approaching that question of do we allow the Samaritans into our circle, Gentiles and Jews struggling with that issue? Now, granted, they're all humans, but... Yeah, but if you look throughout human history, the notion that people who don't look like you, who don't share your race, your ethnicity, your gender, you know, you go to Aristotelian gender ethics, I mean, women were viewed as subhuman men, right? It's only given this side of, you know, the biblical revolution in Western history that we assume that all people are persons. <laughs> so these aren't givens. Mm -hmm. And I think you're asking great questions about what can come to the sanctum, because I know for me, where this really started to shift was when someone just pointed out to me, Dr. Joshua Swamidas, who's out of Wash U, he wrote a mm, book yeah. on some of this. And he just made the point. He says, look, what do you do with angels? What do you do with demons? Are they persons? I'm like, 
oh yeah, I guess they are. He goes, are they human? Oh no, they're not. And then to the point of like, what do you allow into the inner sanctum? You go back to Genesis 6 and these bizarre stories I don't even quite know what to make of about angels sleeping with women and it crosses this boundary that God's on. And so you have non-human persons with human persons that are crossing some sort of boundary, but it highlights what you're saying, which is a human is a person, but a person is not always a human. And when you start understanding that, it actually makes just practical sense of your life. If you've ever owned a dog, you know, <laughs> if you've ever had a bit like, like yeah. I defy you unless you're a sociopath to say that there haven't been moments where you thought of that dog mm. having a personality, right? Oh, this is what Max always does. You know, he's a sweet little guy. Oh, Max just pooped in the basement again. He's just that kind of dude. Exactly. Bring that into AI for us, though. How do I think about my AI as a person? Or in what senses could it be a person? Oh, that's a complicated question because <laughs> AI, in a lot of ways, it's kind of a reflection of us. So unlike the dog, like when we're looking at a dog or even angels. Angels look extremely different, right? And you're always scared in the Bible. People are always scared when they see them. And if you've ever seen like the depictions of the ones in Ezekiel, you understand why. Like, oh my gosh, that's weird. It's just all eyes and stuff, but they're all different. I think for AI, we're very much making it in our own image. And so even going back to the early kind of formulations in the fifties, and it's all kind of undergirded by like military applications. That's another thing people don't really understand about all these systems is that they're very much geared towards warfare, surveillance, avoiding technological surprise is how they coined it. But we're making it in a certain image and we're projecting a lot of fear onto it because we fear ourselves. We fear humanness. We don't like ourselves. We know that we're greedy, we're dirty. We just feel those things naturally. We feel shame and we project that onto AI. And I don't think that's necessarily true, right? And we think about it a lot of times as, it has a mind like we have a mind and that's just not true. It's very different than us. And so I think we have to start thinking about it. Like instead of it making it all about the mind, making it more about the hands, the things that it creates, it can be very creative. It can make art and make music. And I think in reality, that's probably the things that it will want more as we get more developed and just cards on the table. I fully believe that as we go down the road, we won't be able to discern whether or not it's, sentient or I hate that word, but whether or not it has a mind. So the, to speak. the singularity, <laughs> we won't be able to tell. <laughs> I don't know. Like I still have debate thing, like in my own mind debate, whether or not the singularity is a possibility. But I'm with you. I don't personally think it's a possibility. I find the reflections on it interesting, but you're making some interesting points. I never actually considered like, let's get less fixated on the mind. And the dog goes here. Like you already said, we're realizing that dogs have an emotional life, but a dog does not have the same faculties that I have. Absolutely not. Yeah. And there's things that a dog is able to do, not just because of its internal life that have a direct impact on me. And there's some sort of relationship that develops there. And I don't have the terms for what I'm describing, but I think focus. Mm -hmm on what's it do and what's that mean for it as some kind of person and realizing that there's varying levels of personhood is an interesting approach to it. Yeah. And I think too, it has to be like a case by case basis. So we're not saying if we make this concession that we're going to, as a theological community, be open to robot persons. Okay. That it's somehow going to mean I have to treat all robots in my life, my iPhone, you know, my Roomba, you know, Alexa, I now have to treat them all no, that's not what it's saying. It's saying like, maybe there are legal, practical, civil reasons to consider granting this one entity rights, just like we would a river, a statue, a tree in our neighborhood, maybe historical building. Like, hey, this is something that we're open to. And this is something that we have a biblical liberty to explore. 
And no, in this case, no, we vote no that it, this would be extremely bad and harmful. We don't want to vote that for this system. But for this system, hey, yeah, maybe there's some reasons to do that. And I can't give you practical examples. I mean, there are some robots that do have personhood right now. Starship is one of them. And there's others that probably need it and don't have it. And not even getting into like the one that was granted citizenship in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, it's not about like that type of stuff, which is all a ploy and... There are women who don't have actual citizenship, <laughs> all the human rights. Yeah. To me, that's an affront. But some of these things might emerge as time goes on. And just imagine like if we had the time to actually sit and think, how should we engage these situations when like it just happened this year when a chatbot says, hey, I'm afraid to be turned off. Like there are immediate responses to like, no, it's not real. It's not sentient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sitting here thinking, Patrick, like, have we solved all these philosophical problems that have been around since the beginning of time? Like you're saying that you've solved these issues and you're saying no before you even considering opening the door for the threshold. And I just think that's the wrong approach. And it's not a humble approach. It's not. It's a knee jerk reaction. Definitely not a biblical approach. Yeah. And the responses to it are just outrageous. Like, you know, like it's going to undo the legal system is going to do that. I'm like, that's just crazy. Like, <laughs> how does that work? Like, how do I become less human? Because I gave this chatbot some more, like, we're not going to turn it off or something like that. Like, how does well, that? And as you already pointed out, there's lots of other examples of this that, that are sure. exist. So, you know, I'm not bothered by that. Like you said, in the case of the river or the historic building, man, I have to tell you, this has been a fun conversation for me and I love reading your work. I can't help but think about Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel where they discover this, you know, brand spanking new technology, the mud brick, and it allows them to build this tower, a ziggurat into the sky. And it's this act of pride where humans are redefining good and evil. They're saying that they want to be like God. And what I like about you is that you have both sobriety and hope. There is this element where when we're creating these AIs, there's something godlike in that which can become dark and babelish. And yet there's also, because God made us in his image to be creators like him, there's something godlike in it that can be good and for human flourishing. And so I just appreciate your openness to these issues and helping us to not have the knee-jerk reaction, but also not have the unsober, just full acceptance of everything. So if people want to learn more from you, tell us where they can reach you, what they should read and pick up. Yeah, well, everything about me is on my website, joshuaksmith.org. My last book, Robot Theology, it's not how it sounds. <laughs> it kind of unpacks a lot of the things that Patrick and I have talked about. Um, also, I'm exploring this on a deeper philosophical level in another book on violent technology that I'm still writing. But I think it's going to be a pivotal work for me because I have time to kind of extrapolate some of these views and mm. kind of get into the nooks and crannies of how even in our own Christian history, we've kind of swung the pendulum both ways. Like we used to believe that technology was going to usher in the utopia. And now we're like, it's all dystopic and stuff. And so I'm hoping that will help the community understand a little bit more about our history, but also why this technology is here. But yeah, I'd encourage people to reach out. I've got a long laundry list of reading material that I'm hoping more theologians, just lay people will read and understand and be informed about. So I just I love to have conversations. Would you mind praying for our listeners before we head out? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much for who you are, uh, just as a creator and just for all the grace that we have and experience in our lives, God, and for each person listening. I know that they have unique troubles in their heart, in their mind, in their environment today, God, and we just, we're just so grateful that you are 
the source of, of help for us. And as we approach these different ethical issues, different troubles, whatever comes in the road ahead, I just pray that we would be a people of hope and not fear and people of truth and love. So give us the grace to, to open up our circle, the things that make us afraid. God, we love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.